Hello, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, July the 3rd, and a very happy Independence Day to all of you. We continue looking at the book of Job. And in chapter 32, we come to a sudden and somewhat unexpected turn in the development of of the book, and a new voice is heard. A, A new name appears, really without much introduction, but the program notes of this drama led us in on some further information in the opening verses of the chapter. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And then Elihu, the son of Barachel and Buzite of the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And he was angry also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he became angry. So there's a temptation to ask that, you know, one is tempted to ask that about this young man, Elihu. Who, who is this guy? Where did he come from? And why does he speak at this moment? We learn from this account, of course, that there were others who were listening to this dialogue between Job and his three friends. And, and among them is Elihu, which means my God is he. He is also identified as the son of Barachel. That means God blesses the Buzite. In the opening of the book, we saw that Job lived in the land of Uz, but there was also another land nearby called Buz. These lands were named for two brothers back in the days following Noah and the flood, and Elihu had come from the land of Buz. We know nothing more about him. And in chapter 32, we we get basically the introduction to his message, and he opens it in a word of sort of this being courteous, a courteous explanation for his silence. I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom, but it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the almighty that makes him understand. It is not the old that are wise, nor the aged that understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion." chapter 32, 6 through 10. So commentators seem to differ very widely as to what to do with Elihu. Some regard him as a brash, you know, kind of young punk with the arrogance of youth who speaks up to tell the older men what they were, that they were doing um, what was wrong. And, and while others seem to see him merely as repeating, in other words, the, the arguments of his friends without adding much. And still other commentators view this as a kind of meaningless interpretation in this dialogue of which God takes no notice at all. But, but I agree with the commentators who see Elihu as a very important part in the book. Let's point out the certain things about this young man as we are introduced to him. First of all, when we come to the end of the book and we read the, the rebuke that God gives to the three friends of Job, we will note that Elihu is not included. He is not rebuked for what he says, and he does not have to ask Job to pray for him as they have to do. The second thing is that he's given an obvious prominent part in the story. His message occupies the next five chapters, and he's allowed to give one of the major discourses of the book. And thirdly, he always speaks with 
with a sensitiveness, a, a sensitiveness, excuse me, to Job, despite the strong feelings that he admits that he has. The other friends were caustic. They were sarcastic in their approach to Job. But this young man, he's very courteous when he addresses him. He recognizes the depth of Job's suffering, and he always speaks with some understanding. And then fourth, and maybe the most important thing, is that Elihu claims to speak not as the other men did from their experience, but he claims to speak from revelation. And that's what we read in verses 8 through 9. Elihu says, it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. And this is a line where, that we've seen previously in Job, that, the knowledge, that knowledge is something we gain by the years as they go by. It's not, excuse me, something we gain as the years go by, but by understanding and wisdom is something that only God can give. And he can give it to the young as well as to the old. So it's not the accumulation of the years of experience that make people wise. It is what God has taught them through the years. And this is a very important part. God can teach a young man or woman as much as an older man or woman. And when we speak from the wisdom of God, then we can truly be wise, regardless of what our yearly age may be. It's a reminder of the story that I think I've even shared before of the school teacher who applied for a job and was turned down in preference to another younger teacher who had only three years of experience. And the first teacher protested to the principal, said, hey, I've had 25 years experience. Why was I passed over in favor of this younger one? And the principal said, well, I I have to disagree with you. You haven't had 25 years experience. You've had one year's experience 25 times. It is quite possible to go through life repeating the same way of thinking over and over and over again and never learn wisdom. So Elihu is right here. It it is not the old that are wise nor the aged that understand what is right. It is the spirit of the Almighty that teaches us wisdom. Now, I think that Elihu then comes into the book as, as the answer to Job's cry for an explanation. God has been silent, it seems, and though Job is suffering and cries out for, for help, no answer is given. But in God's wonderful way of answering, I think this is his reply to Job, and he replies in a way that Job did not expect. This young man who has been listening all along suddenly speaks up, and he appears as a witness to a mediator for whom Job has been crying out throughout the entire book. And we can see Elihu as a kind, as a kind of, a, almost like a John the Baptist in, um, of the Old Testament, if, if you like, in the book of Job. He, he gives witness to the mediator who was God himself. And just as John said, he, he was a voice crying in the wilderness, pointing to the one who would make a ransom between man and God. So Elihu appears as the one who gives a witness to what Job is crying out for, an umpire, a mediator, someone who can lay his hand on both God and man. This is the part that he plays in the book. And he begins where the friends begin, and he ends with words very similar to the voice of God when God appears on the scene. So in this introduction in verse 11 and on, he speaks of his patience that he is now exhausted. He says, behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention and behold, there was none that confuted Job or that answered his words among you. 
Beware lest you say we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not man. He, he has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. Then speaking of the friends, he says, they are discomforted. They answer no more. They have not a word to say, and I will wait because they do speak. They do not speak because they stand here and answer, to answer no more. So with courteous sort of explanation, he begins to speak and he says he has to say something. He feels pressure within him. I also will give my answer. I will declare my opinion for I am full of words and the spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my heart is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins. It is ready to burst. Have we ever felt that way listening to an argument or we just had to say something because we see it's going astray or it's illogical and we can hardly restrain ourselves from speaking? And Elihu says, hey, I must speak that I might find relief. And he reassures Job and the friends, I will not show partiality to any person or use flattery toward any man, for I do not know how to flatter else would my maker soon put an end to me. And then in chapter 33, Elihu addresses uh, to, to Job, and it opens with an invitation to dialogue. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks, my words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. And here's the promise that he's going to give honest words. He's not going to flatter. He's not going to speak out of experience. He's going to speak from what he has been taught and his words will be honest without partiality. And he, fur- and he goes on further and he says that they will come from a humble heart. The spirit of God has, has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was formed from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of, of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy on you. What a difference that is from the way that the friends came on to Job. And this young man says, no, I'm, I'm just a man like you. What I may say to help uh, has come from what God has taught me, but I'm just like you are. I'm not going to accuse you or come on heavy uh, against you. I'm speaking merely as God has taught me, as the Spirit of God has given me life. And then beginning with verse 8, he begins to analyze Job's view of God. That that is the problem all through the book. Job, like the friends, had a narrow, limited theology, which did not include room for God's God's ways beyond the normal thinking of, of humanity. And this is what often happens with my theology, with your theology. We try to narrow God down to our way of thinking. And what this book teaches us, more than anything else, is to see that God is always beyond man. He is above humanity. So now Job's first view of God, according to Elihu, is that he saw God as uh, capricious. Or in other words, he acted without any good reason. He acted just out of his feelings, like we do, like I do according to our mood. Many people see God this way. Possibly we project our view of ourselves into infinity and we say, hey, God acts the way we do. He can get up in the morning and be grouchy and hard to live with. And and we have to, you know, kind of have that kind of a God all day. And Job felt that way about him. And Elihu points this out. He says in verse eight, surely you have spoken in my hearing and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, 
I am clean without transgression. I am pure and there's no iniquity in me. Behold, he, God, finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. He, he summarizes all that Job's been saying, that God mistreats him without a reason, that he's doing these things without justification just because he simply wants to. And now Elihu's answer is in one short word in verse 12. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you. And here's the answer. God is greater than man. Job 32, 12. And that's what I always have to remember about God, that he is beyond me. His range of understanding is so much greater than mine. Uh, Humanity is too ignorant, too limited, too easily deceived. History proves this over and over again. To ever lay a charge of just whateverness against God. God God always acts in accordance with his nature of love and behind every act of God is a loving heart. And when we do not think so, when when that doesn't square up with what I see love being, it is it is me who is deceived. It is it is we who are misjudging. We do not see what he is after. And this is the continual argument of the scripture from beginning to the end. In the ninth chapter of Romans, Paul says the same thing. He says, who are you, O man, that replies against God? Why, you're nothing but a creature with a very limited experience and a very limited understanding. You don't even know all the facts involved. How then can we raise a challenge against the creator who sees so much more? God is greater than humanity. So with that brief word, Elihu puts that to rest. And then he moves to the second thing that Job saw about God, and that that was his problem with the silence of God. Why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of my words, for God speaks in one way, and in two, through man does not perceive it. Chapter 33, verse 13 through 14. And once again, one of the major problems we have is the silence of God, unanswered prayers, as I see it, right, as we see it. We say our prayers, they feel like they're just hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down. They're not answered because we prayed 10 minutes ago and the answer hasn't come yet. We think that God is responsible to come back with an immediate answer. But Elihu helps us here with this. He says God does speak, but in ways sometimes that we don't understand. There are two ways, Elihu suggests. First, God speaks in dreams. And then in verse 15, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when the deep sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn aside from his deed and cut off pride from man. He keeps back, he keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Notice, how clearly he states that God's objective with man, with humanity, is always to stop us from destroying ourselves. It is, it is man who is bent upon destruction. And God's efforts that cause distress and pain and warnings are designed to keep us from hurting ourselves and each other, to keep back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. One, one of the ways that God does that is to speak in dreams. Now, we say, surely you're not going to start telling us that we have to start analyzing all of our dreams. And it's, it's true that not all dreams represent God speaking to us. Some of them come from um, eating pizza too late at night, indigestion, right, or whatever other causes. But, but psychologists tell us, as, as one voice, 
that dreams are a way by which reality suppressed comes into our conscious, whether we like it or not. We, we all tend to deceive ourselves. Things that we do not like, we put away, we shove down into our subconsciousness, and so they appear in our dreams. Oftentimes, they do take the form of warnings in which we see ourselves doing things that we are ashamed of or horrified by. And it's a warning that the, ten- the tendency, the possibility of doing that is deep within all of us. So watch out what we're thinking. It is the beginning to show up in our dreams. And though I'm not trying to lay a case here for interpreting dreams, the scripture is full of instances where God does speak in dreams. Daniel and Ezekiel and the other of the prophets understood a lot of this, um, understood a lot of God by means of dreams. And I believe that this is indicating that God does speak to us sometimes, uh, not, not so much in predicting the future, um, but in showing us what we're trying to hide from ourselves in the now, in the present. And then the second thing that Elihu says is that God also speaks through pain in verse 19. Man is also chastened with pain upon his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that life, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite dainty food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones, which, which were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. Job 33, 19 through 22. So here, Elihu's argument almost seems to describe all that Job has gone through. The, the, the man is saying, the young man is saying, God is speaking to you, Job. You think he's not saying anything? He is. Your very sufferings are speaking to you. But not so much as, as the friends were arguing to punish you for something you did that you're trying to hide because that isn't true. God is helping you to understand something that you don't understand, and pain is what makes it possible. I think a lot of us have had the experience of feeling a threat of some kind to our life from illness, and it tends to do really amazing things in our view of life. Our value system changes instantly. We begin to think of certain things as far more important than we had ever thought before. C.S. Lewis says this about pain. He says, we can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Have I ever thought about that? Have we ever thought about God shouting at us through pain? God in love brings these things on us that that he may speak to us, that we will hear what he has to say. Now, Elihu goes on to bring out a second thing in verse 23. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is gracious to him, and he says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Those last words seem to describe the experience that we would call today being born again, a return to the freshness, the, the vitality of youth. And what brings it? 
What brings that about? Well, as Elihu says, it is the presence in our pains of a mediator, one of one of the thousand who declares to man what is right and provides a ransom for him. What an amazing preview this is of the gospel of the grace of God. Remember, Paul argues in this in Romans 5. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because in our sufferings, we're being taught by God that he's working out purposes that we do not understand, but for our good. And through the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, we can realize that God's love is training us, steadying us, and teaching us through the time of stress. That's Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. That's why suffering, when it's interpreted, interpreted by the mediator that God provides, is a blessing. But suffering without that mediation produces bitterness, resentment, anger, frustration, revolt, rebellion, all against God's will. So there must be a mediator, Elihu says. Now, this is a reference to the, to the, to the slow and certain light that has begun been growing in Job's heart all this time of suffering. He is beginning to understand something about life that he did not know before. And there are references to it that we've seen all along. In chapter 9, he cried out, there's no umpire between us that may lay his hand on both God and man. Then in chapter 16, he said, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who vouches for me is on high. God is going to be the mediator. And then in chapter 19, he comes out clearly and cries, I know that my Redeemer lives and on the earth shall stand. And though my, the skin worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God face to face. And then in chapter 23, he's learned as he cries, he knows the way that I take. When he was tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Now here, Elihu reminds him of that ministry of the mediator and tells him that if he allows the mediator's work to guide him through this time, he will be restored. His, his flesh will come fresh with youth, and he will return to the days of his youthful vigor. And then he gives him the means of doing it. In verse 26, then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He comes into his presence with joy. He recounts to men his salvation. And he sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not requited to me. God did not punish me for what I did. He has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and my life shall see the light. Job 33, 26 through 28. Now pain did that. And so Elihu exhorts Job in verse 29, behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man. How patient God is, how long he waits and allows me to mediate on and struggle with these things. And he will sometimes bring us back to them again and again till I understand. And so Elihu cries in verse 31, give heed, O Job, listen to me, be silent and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me, be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Job 33, 31 through 33. And the silence of Job at this point seems to indicate that at last he is ready to listen. God is able to teach him 
what the heart and the meaning of all the suffering has been in his life. And when Elihu finishes, God himself begins to speak. Amen. And God bless.